I thought you were going to volunteer to do all the child care, Ed. That's great. That is great. Uh, A couple of things more that I want to share, just family stuff that's going on. You know, we've been praying for the retreats, for the students that that went, and um, actually I was sent some information that I thought was very interesting. Uh, 76... Students and leaders went on the winter retreats this year. 27 uh, students received some sort of scholarship funding. That's because of you guys. 27 of the 76 uh, received some form of scholarship. A zero it was the number of dodgeball games that they won. Uh, Joseph says we're not that athletic of a group. Uh, three is the number of years in a row where we have had to turn away Adult volunteers to serve on the retreats. I mean, that is phenomenal. Do you know how often student ministries beg for people to come work with middle school and high school students? We are blessed in this church with, by you all. Uh, we don't beg at all, and we are just blessed at the numbers of volunteers that want to speak into the lives of students. Four is the number of hours that the high school students spent in prayer for one another the last night of the retreat. Four hours praying for each other while others were off doing games. Our group is way the heck more spiritual. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Actually, you might say we just way need more prayer. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Uh, Fourteen, the students who rededicated their life to Christ and have said, we, I am all in for following Jesus. Fourteen of the students. And then six, we had six students profess faith in Jesus uh, as their Lord and Savior for the first time. That's, <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you, Jesus, for answering prayers. Um, one more thing, you know, we've been in this series uh, now on love languages, and somebody put together, uh, a, there's a basket out in the connect table, and it's a, a little series of notes that you can use to thank people for the many ways in which they love you, have, have loved you. And it's a very creative, there's even some suggested ideas out there for things you might write and say, and, uh, and I, so stop by, pick up a handful of the little bags, they're in little baggies, And uh, they're on the connect table, and that is just a ministry from someone in the church to you to kind of help you express thanks for the love that you've been receiving. Sound like a good idea? Yeah, it's a great idea. And uh, and then one more thing. Um, You know, we believe that to really have a meaningful, purposeful life, your life has to have a mission. And uh, we, so every, every year we do a missions emphasis where we talk about our vision, our mission, and the partners that we partner with. And that's coming up uh, here in the month of February. And February 20th, we will have a banquet in this room. This room will be filled with tables. And we, will, we have a special speaker, George Houseney, who's with Horizons Ministry. It's a ministry to Muslims. George is a phenomenal speaker. And more importantly, he's really incredibly gifted by God to reach Muslim people. He has incredible stories. I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to join us for that missions banquet. It's coming up real soon, February 20th. And I think you can actually sign up for that. How, Tim? Online? Online. Right there. Okay. Mission Simmons. No, it doesn't. Oh, it says register online. There we go. So, got it? Good. Okay. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for worship this morning. Uh, Thank you for the people that you've gifted to serve our children downstairs and speak love and life to them. And, And thank you for the people, God, that you've gifted up here that lead us into your presence. A lot of things to distract us, God. We have a little football game today, and and some of us are uh, thinking about that and looking at the odds on our phones right now. And uh, would you help us at this moment, God, just to hear from you and listen to you? And it's it's really the most uh, important thing we can do, God. What are you saying to me? And may we hear you clearly, and may we respond. And may we win the Super Bowl. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, this morning we come to the end of our series. You know, we've uh, been talking about the five love languages. And understanding that what makes me feel loved isn't necessarily the same thing that might make you feel loved. And we want to learn 
these various love languages, the, uh, particularly of the people who are up close to us, but just in general of the people around us, because we want to get better at loving them. Why do we want to do that? Well, because life is about love, period. Life is about love. And spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is actually measured by how loving we are, not how much we know. And if you think about it, that's a bit of a paradigm shift for a lot of us in North America who sit in churches. Spiritual maturity, spiritual growth is really measured by how loving we are, how like Christ we are in relating to the people around us. Jesus was always talking about and demonstrating this thing called agape love. And we have talked a lot about this in the past four weeks, five weeks, that agape love is this thing of willing and working for the good of the people around us, the people uh, with whom we, we traffic, so to speak. And we've also been learning about our love languages. For some of us, our love languages, uh, we talked about words of affirmation. And we looked at how Jesus used words of affirmation. For others, it's spending quality time. And again, we looked at how Jesus spent time with the disciples to uh, speak love into their lives. For some people, the primary, their primary love language is that of giving gifts. For others, it's acts of servanthood. Today, we're going to talk about the last one, physical touch. And you can kind of tell if physical touch is the primary love language of the person sitting next to you. You can kind of tell. Because if it is, they're sitting right up next to you. They're maybe touching your back or maybe they have their arm around you or they're, they're holding your hand or they're scooched up to you. You know, that, that person speaks this language of touch. Now, for any child to be hugged and to be touched or to be held says, I love you to that child, for any child. But to the child where physical touch is their primary love language, wow, that may be more important than any other form of love that you can speak to them, any other language. Now, this remains true even as they grow older. Uh, Now, the master of this love language, physical touch, just like all the rest of them, is who? Very good. Very good, church. Yeah. And uh, just saying that, just saying that Jesus is the master of this love language of physical touch raises a very critically important subject for us. It's a doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the incarnation. Something happened, you see, in the story of God relating to the human race that nobody, and I mean nobody, could have predicted. Something that is terribly important for us to think about as we think about this particular love language. There was a movie a while back, and I don't remember the name of it. I only caught a part of it. But there was a movie a while back where the central character was this middle-aged woman. She was kind of a little bit ditzy, you know. And uh, she loved to tell her friends about these cheap romance novels that she was always reading. She always had one with her, always was reading it. And the plot in these novels was always the same. It was incredibly predictable. And yet these plots would always catch this particular character completely by surprise. And she would share it with her friends. And she would describe them like this. She would say, you know, I'm reading this book and and it's about a prince. And he was to marry a princess who, of course, was beautiful but kind of haughty. No, in fact, very haughty. And there was a peasant girl who was to sew all of the wedding clothes, and she fell desperately in love with the prince, but she was a peasant girl, so she knew he would never even notice her. And on the morning of the wedding, she brought the wedding clothes for the bride and the groom, and she got the surprise of her life because the prince didn't love the beautiful, haughty princess. The prince had fallen in love with her, and he wanted to marry her. And she would say this same line every time she would explain one. Boy, I didn't see that one coming, she would say. And then she would tell her friends about another book. Oh, there's this wealthy noble merchant, and he's to marry this elegant but kind of icy heiress, right? And then there's this poor kitchen girl who was supposed to bake their wedding cake. And the kitchen girl fell in love with the noble, uh, wealthy merchant. But she knew he would never, ever even notice her. But then on the day of the wedding, there was this cake which she had made. And on top of it, the, the, uh, this, this wealthy, uh, noble merchant had placed this little statuette of the bride and the groom. But the bride wasn't the icy heiress. It was her. It was the kitchen girl. And she would say, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so now the Apostle John starts telling a story. It's a really important story. It starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. It's that same phrase that we find in the Old Testament. In the greatest story at all, of all. In the beginning. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. And that, that word that we translate word into English is the Greek word logos. And it means logic or reason or understanding or insight or wisdom. It can be translated in various ways. And all of John's readers, when they would have read that beginning, in the beginning was the word, they would have loved that beginning. Ancient Greeks loved reason and logic, and they they loved this idea of the logos. Some of them believed that it was actually an eternal spirit and a kind of a divine being or presence that you should actually worship, and they did. It was forever separated. This Logos was forever separated from anything in the material world, which is, of course, where we live with bodies that are corruptible and where stuff rots and decays. But reason and Logos never changes, and it's beautiful to behold. It was separate from anything corruptible, and so they thought we should worship the Logos. And Israel, of course, too, loved wisdom so much that in the Old Testament you can find examples of where they personified wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, for example, Proverbs 120, it says, Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. Wisdom is personified. And they would talk about wisdom being uh, with God and, and, and part of who God is from all eternity. And so when John writes, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, every Jewish reader who had become a follower of Jesus is going, wow, this is great. This is fantastic. Wisdom, the Word. You see, it wasn't just available to God. It was God's, part of God's identity. It was part of his character. It was part of his essence. God can't do anything that is not wise. And they understood this. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They would all love that. But then John writes this. The Word became flesh, right? Whoa. Didn't see that coming. Did not see that. Nobody saw that coming. Really, nobody did. Anne Lamott, who's a very interesting writer, she's a, she's a woman who came to faith in Jesus kicking and screaming. The last thing she wanted to have happen in her life was to become a Christian, right? But she writes about a little girl who was afraid to go to sleep, and she would ask her mom to come be with her in her bedroom at night because it was dark and she didn't want to be alone. And finally her mom said to her, Look, you're not alone, honey. God is with you. And the little girl said, I know, I know God is with me, but I need someone with skin on, the little girl said. Well, get this. Jesus is God with skin on. The Word became flesh, you see. And I need to say a bit about why this claim is so central and so vital to the Christian faith. I I know it can sound like a very odd idea. The Word became flesh. God became a human being. I mean, that's That's really odd. But the reason this is so important is it means that God wants to be with us so much that he became like us. He became like us. And by the way, that's part of what love always does, isn't it? Love always enters into the experience and the existence and the burdens of others. It's exactly what Jesus did. You see, through Jesus, we can know what God is like. And then get this, and I I wish I could really explain it to you, but I can't. Somehow, through Jesus, God knows exactly what we are like. The Word became flesh. The truth has... This truth of the incarnation and of Jesus coming to earth and of Jesus becoming a human being has staggered people for over 2,000 years when they think about it, when they reflect on it. Somehow in Jesus, God knows firsthand through experience what it means to be tired and hungry, what it means to be thirsty, what it means to cough or to get sick or to hit his thumb with a hammer or to skin his knee. You see, in Jesus, God went through adolescence. Hard to imagine. In Jesus, God's voice changed. God was tempted. God cried. In Jesus, God bled and God died. In Jesus. Didn't see that coming. Didn't see that coming. The Word became flesh. 
Now, whatever you think of this, you have to reflect on it. It's almost mind-boggling. But to John, the Apostle John, understand, this is not poetry. This is not metaphor. This is not theological speculation or just a lovely idea. This happened. This is real. And this matters not because it's some abstract doctrine that you have to affirm before you can be called a Christian or before God will let you into heaven or something. It matters because it means that God is not just an idea or a concept, not just a distant, disconnected deity. I mean, you trace this out in churches and traditions or denominations where this belief is, is lost, this idea of the incarnation, or it's viewed as just good religious mythology. And I'll tell you what, God turns into this kind of pale, lifeless, abstract idea, and faith never keeps its vitality without a full embracing of this thing of the incarnation that Jesus has come to us, that Jesus became a human being. It matters, you see, because God is real. It matters because God is alive, and it matters because God is active. It matters because God has inhabited our planet, and if you will let him, he will inhabit your life. He will. He promises to. You see, in the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? Well, then one day in another important beginning, the word became flesh, and heaven and earth came together as God always intended they should. And that happened in Jesus, his life and his ministry. Jesus is God with skin on. Now, for the rest of this message, I want to talk about Jesus and this thing of physical touch. I went through the Gospels and I looked at all the many times that it talks about Jesus touching people. (laughs) And honestly, I was staggered by how essential touch became to Jesus' life, and to Jesus' ministry. Uh, I want to look at just a few of these episodes and make some observations together if we can. And as we do this, I want to talk about how we can express love through physical touch the way Jesus did. Does that seem reasonable? Okay. So here we go. First observation. Often in Jesus' life and ministry, physical touch brought healing. It's just a fact. You know, over and over when Jesus heals people, he would do it with a touch. One instance is in the Gospel of Mark, the very first chapter of Mark. It says, A man with leprosy came to him, to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if you put yourself in that circumstance, if you're in that circumstance, if you're an observer, this is a very dramatic moment. Anybody who had leprosy in that world was regarded not just as sick, but as unclean. Uh, This was uh, real clear in the law, the Old Testament law. And these laws were given for medical reasons, you understand. They were given to uh, contain contagious diseases and things of that nature. When someone had a contagious disease, they were unclean and they were to keep away from the rest of the population. So if a person touches uh, uncleanness or someone who is unclean, then they themselves become unclean. Unclean. If I'm unclean and you touch me, then you become unclean. You become like a leper for a period of time, for a period of observation to make sure you didn't contract the disease. Now, this is why lepers were required to keep a distance of at least six feet from everybody. Imagine if you're the leper, the feeling of separation, the feeling of isolation that that brings to you. On a windy day, they were supposed to stay further away out of fear that uh, disease could be contracted or passed through the wind. Uh, They had to tear their clothes as a visible sign and symbol, I'm a leper. Uh, They had to cover their mouths. They had to cry out if you were getting close to them, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would get close enough to touch them. Leprosy was often thought to be a kind of a manifestation of an inner uncleanness as well. It was often associated with the judgment of God in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that God made it such, but people often looked at it this way. Uh, We're told in Numbers 12 uh, about Miriam, Moses' sister, and, and she sins grievously before God. And what happens is leprosy breaks out as a divine judgment upon her. And And uh, so people often thought, well, if you've even got leprosy, it's some form of divine judgment on you. And often it carried that that sort of moral stigma attached to it. 
Rabbis would sometimes throw stones at lepers if lepers didn't keep the appropriate distance. If the rabbis thought that lepers were getting too close to their disciples or to their group. And so, interestingly, a leper comes to Rabbi Jesus. Everybody watches to see what Jesus is going to do. And this is what we read. It says, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. So let's back up for a second. A leper comes to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean, he says. And Jesus is filled with compassion. Jesus gets an idea. He hasn't said a word yet. And he reaches out a hand and he touches this guy, this leper. And when he did that, I'm sure, we're not told, but I'm sure there was a gasp. His disciples, anybody watching this, what's he doing? This is a loaded situation. Jesus has deliberately taken on this man's uncleanness. Jesus the rabbi has deliberately broken the medical mosaic law in order to heal, in order to save another human being. And now it's Jesus and this leper who are unclean while everybody else is clean. And the disciples look at each other and I'm sure they were thinking, wow, I didn't see that coming. Had no idea he would do something like that. And then Jesus speaks the word, I'm willing, be clean. And Jesus reverses the effects of sin in the world as it relates to this leper. Now the question is, at least that occurs to me, is why does Jesus touch the man while the man is still unclean? Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have healed the man first and then touched him. He could have kept the law, but he didn't. What is Jesus doing? I'm glad you asked. I've got some ideas I'm going to share with you. I think it's because now that the word has become flesh, God wants us to understand that in his kingdom, nobody is untouchable. Nobody is an outcast. You see, in God's kingdom, there is just no such thing as a human being from which we must keep our distance. God has come to earth to touch, to love, and to heal untouchables. Truth be told, we all feel like untouchables at times. You see, this is a a huge alteration, too, of the notion of what it means to be really, truly spiritual and righteous in Jesus' day and I might add ours. You see, in general, in the ancient world, physical imperfections a lot of times were associated with spiritual imperfections. Oh, you must have done something to have that disease or have that imperfection was the thought. Uh, In the temple, you know, just the, the temple itself was holy ground. It was a holy space, a holy place. So you couldn't even bring an imperfect animal into the temple courts in order to offer that imperfect animal in sacrifice. Uh, nor could people <coughs> excuse me, with any uh, disease or, or imperfection enter into the temple compound. Now, Pharisees, who wanted to take the law of Moses and add many more laws to it to just make double, triple, quadruple sure that they weren't breaking any of the laws, they often extended this same principle to their homes. And so people with physical flaws or imperfections were excluded. They were not allowed. They were not welcome into their homes. They wouldn't touch them because they viewed themselves as righteous and those people are unclean. I want nothing to do with them. But Rabbi Jesus just keeps touching people. There's Peter's mother-in-law and she's sick with a fever and and Jesus touches her on the hand and and he heals her and he raises her up. There's a 12-year-old girl who is deathly ill, and, and Jesus touches her. And then she's healed. 
There are two blind men in Capernaum, and Jesus touches them, and he heals them. There's a deaf mute in an area called Decapolis, and nobody would go near this individual. Nobody wanted anything to do with this individual, but Jesus touches him and heals him. There's a blind man in Bethsaida, and Jesus touches him and heals him. There's a blind man in Jerusalem. Jesus touches his eyes and heals him. There's a deaf and a mute man in Jerusalem, and Jesus touches his eyes and touches his tongue and heals him. Over and over and over again. He could have healed with just a word, but he chooses to heal with a touch. Why? I think it's because religious leaders in that day thought that they were showing their devotion to God by who they would not touch. I won't touch you. I'm not going to touch you. Don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to touch you. But Jesus ironically shows his devotion to the Father by whom he would touch. Shocking all of the religious people. <laughs> you know, it's just it's interesting to me. Today we actually know this. We, we know that physical touch quite literally has a certain healing power to it. Now, when Jesus was healing, it was a miraculous healing, no doubt about that. But we, we know that just physically touching people has a, has a healing power to it. There was a study done by UCLA. This is an old study. You've all heard of it. People who receive meaningful touch at least ten times a day, and that's not like this. You know, meaningful touch is, you know, an arm, a tender touch, an embrace, a hug, what have you. Uh, they live longer lives. I mean, this is, research just demonstrates this. They live longer, more healthy lives than people who do not. Period. You think Jesus knew that? I think he might have. Well, okay, Dwayne, so what? <laughs> so what? Well, here's the so what. I mean, this week... Friends, as we try to practice this thing of love language, if you see somebody hurting, especially somebody whose primary love language is touch, especially in that case, well, take a moment and, and reach out. That's what your hands are for. At least one of the things. And it's amazing with a friend or a child or a coworker or a spouse, if someone is having a really difficult, really trying, a really stressful day, just the power of touch, just the power of a hand on another human being. Uh, and, and a lot of times Christians will add prayer to this. And then it becomes even more significant oftentimes. But those kinds of things can bring encouragement, perspective, Help and even healing. When we pray, when we touch, when we embrace, that's, that's the touch of healing. We see Jesus doing this all the time. And, you know, the message to us is let's become a people who understand the power of touch and exercise the power of prayer. Maybe we would see more healing happen, you think? Okay. Well, here's another observation. I've got 12 of these. Another observation is uh, number, number two. Often in Jesus' life and ministry, physical touch brought about reassurance. You know, the truth about human beings is we live in a world where we've got lots of fears, lots of concerns, lots of questions, and we need lots of reassurance. That's just the truth about us in a frail, broken a fallen world. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told about an event. It's a tremendous uh, moment of drama where the disciples are shaken up. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, takes them up on a mountain, and he's transfigured. You know this story, right? It's Matthew 17. And uh, <clears throat> this is what we read. It says, A bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So they, they literally hear the, the voice of God the Father speaking. They hear this. And it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground terrified. Yeah, we would have all been terrified too. But Jesus came and touched them. He says, get up. Don't be afraid. I find it so interesting that Matthew would include such a tiny detail in the retelling of this story. That the fact that Jesus, before he says anything, he just touches them. You know, they're on the ground in fear and he comes to them and he touches them. Anybody here ever play that game, Duck, Duck, Goose? You know, you get out, and then you're, you're down, and you can't get up until somebody comes along and, and touches you. Here's Jesus going around, touching them uh, on the head, on the shoulder, whatever. It's all right. Don't be afraid. I'm here. You can get up. That was my father's voice, you know, you heard. The point is just this. The touch has the power to soothe people when people are in the grip of fear or, or grief or just confused 
touch sometimes conveys things that that words simply can't. When our kids were very little, often someone, one of them would wake up in the night afraid and they'd start to cry and we'd get up like parents do and we'd go into the room and inevitably they'd be these little tykes in their cribs and, you know, when they're old enough to talk, it's, it's like up, up, you know, they want to be picked up. They want us to hold them and we would be grumpy and frustrated because we're not getting any sleep, right? But how are you going to stay that way when this little, little child is up, 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 you know? point is just that instinctively, if somebody suffers a grief, a loss, a sorrow, a fear, what have you, what do we do? We typically embrace them. We typically hug them. Why do we do that? Again, it's because touch can communicate oftentimes what words cannot. You know, when there is a question that you can't answer or a problem that you cannot solve, a touch can simply say to someone, look, I'm here for you. When I was 12 years old, I've shared this before, you know, my father passed away, and, and uh, so we're at the funeral, and my world was becoming very confusing. Um, you know, how, what, what are we going to do, and are we going to be able to stay where we are currently living, and uh, it turned out we weren't, and it was just everything was up in the air. It was all questions. And is my mom going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? All these things. I had an uncle named Uncle Henry D'Onofrio. Uncle Henry was uh, Italian. And a big guy and, and a very loving individual. I think, looking back, my guess would be his love language was touch. And at some point in the, the gathering, the hours of, of all the family gathering around, and, uh, and so he was noticing me. And my recollection is I was off to the side somewhere observing the adults, you know, processing all this and probably not doing a very good job of um, processing this myself. And so my uncle looked across the, the room that we were in and saw me over there. And he just came over. Put his arm around me. <laughs> it's ridiculous that it makes me tear up at the age of almost 62. Wow, but it does. It communicated something powerful to me. I think I may have interpreted him saying, you're going to be okay. There are people who love you. And you're going to be okay. You see, God made our bodies for touch. That's at least part of the reason. And I don't care how strong or smart or rich you are. uh, You never really get to the point where you stop needing to say, you know, up, up. Somebody give me a hug. Somebody come alongside. Somebody, you know. And I would just add to that, you know, the the church, by the way, is is often called in the New Testament the body of Christ. It's not a coincidence that we're called that. What this means is that the ministry of sanctified touch, holy touch, helpful touch, encouraging touch, you know, you don't have to be afraid. That that ministry belongs to us. We're, We're called to do what Jesus would do with this thing of touch. And I mention this because sometimes it doesn't get practice. I was talking to a woman who's a widow and she was saying, not only did I lose the touch of my husband when he passed, but you know, many of my married friends don't ask me out to be with them. I don't see them all that much anymore. And so I've actually lost the touch of at one time we're close friends. You know, if you're a part of our church, let's make, let's make it a, a deal that when we gather like this, touch is a big part of what we do. You know, when we talk out there in the lobby or when we get up or when we greet or what have you, um, when we gather, let's shake hands. When we gather, let's slap people on the back, not the butt. And when we, you know, let's give someone a hug who needs a hug, especially, you know, when people come to church carrying burdens, let's listen and let's, let's read that. And you don't have to have the answer that solves their burden. I mean, maybe all they need is a hug or a a slap on the back. The church should never be a place where people go and don't have somebody reach out to them. And of course, we need to do this in appropriate ways. I'll say more about that in a minute, but 
Um, we need to look for chances to give the gift to someone which is just a touch of reassurance. You're not alone. We care. And we're here for you. Does that make sense? Okay. Third observation. You know, often in Jesus' life and ministry, physical touch brought reconciliation. He would use physical touch in moments, certain moments, to bring about um, or make possible this thing of reconciliation. You know, the very last healing story recorded in Jesus' life comes just hours before Jesus dies himself. The temple guards come there to the uh, Mount of Olives. They're sent to arrest Jesus. And the apostle Peter decides he's going to defend Jesus. You remember this episode. And so he grabs a sword that he has. I don't know why, but I picture it as being pretty rusty. But anyway, he grabs a sword and he takes a swipe at one of the arresters, a guy by the name of Malchus. And apparently Peter was pretty out of practice because I'm assuming he meant to cut the guy's, cleave the guy's head into, but he, he lops off the right ear. And Jesus says to him, no more of this. Doesn't want any sword play. And he he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus' last miracle before he died. And this little story is actually recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus tells Peter, knock it off. And he turns to this enemy who had come to arrest him, who was going to take him to his death, and he reaches up to his face. Anytime you touch another person's face, that's, a, that's intimate space. You, know, you don't walk around touching people's faces. But Jesus reaches up to his face, and in that moment when everybody is feeling hatred and fear and anger and uncertainty and anxiety, who are these people? Why are they here? Why are they carrying clubs? Why do some of them have weapons? Why are the temple guards here? All this is going on. And I imagine Jesus kind of reaching up and touching Malchus's ear on that right side and just apologizing for Peter. Malchus, I'm sorry. I've been trying to train him for three years. It's, I'm getting nowhere with him. You know, here's your ear back. And he sticks his ear back on. And then they take Jesus away and they murder him. I think about this story. I've thought about it many times. I wonder if Malchus ever asked himself, what kind of man would waste a miracle on one of his killers? Why would he touch me? And I wonder what Malchus said when he got home that night, which would have, he would have gotten home very, very late because this happened at night and, and, and late or in the morning. And imagine his wife saying, anything interesting happened at work today? And you know, well, you know, we arrested the Messiah figure, Jesus. Uh, my ear was cut off, and then Jesus touched me and healed me. Kind of a normal day. I wonder when he was an old man if he would ever scratch his ear and just kind of remember the time when Jesus touched him. And I wonder if that touch for him became a touch of reconciliation. Don't you see that that's what it was meant to be? I mean, Jesus could have just ignored that. You've come here to arrest me and take me to be tried illegally and to be crucified. I'm not even going to bother noticing the fact that your ear has been cut off. But in that moment of what would for most of us be desperation, how can I get out of here? Jesus is actually thinking about Malchus. And he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. And, you know, I I wish we knew the rest of the story for Malchus. We don't know if he did respond in faith. I have a hard time imagining how he couldn't. I don't know. But that whole touch was meant to bring about the possibility of reconciliation for Malchus. Now, on the other extreme, I, you know, I know someone whose marriage has been uh, one of real distance, real disappointment, real estrangement, real difficulty. And it has been like that for many, many years. And this person's primary love language, his primary love language is physical touch. And his, in his marriage relationship, it has just grown more uh, and more distressed. And as that has happened, physical distance became the way that his wife kind of communicates rejection to him. And that dynamic of distance and avoidance and no, no physical touch of any kind, he says, is the most painful thing he's ever had to endure in all his life. And obviously in a marriage that's broken, you have a lot of issues that have to be talked through. And there's issues always on on both sides. It's never just one-sided. But uh, but it does occur to me that in this case, if, if his wife could just touch him on the arm or hold his hand or look him in the eye... His uh, love tank, the language of five, the, the book five, lang- uh, five Love Languages, his, his love tank would have filled up pretty fast, I think. 
so fast it would have probably amazed her. And it wouldn't really cost her anything to do that. If you're in a relationship where there has been that kind of estrangement, uh, I would just say, too, just know you, you don't have to solve every problem in order to touch. Now, I know this raises questions for some of you. What do I do if somebody in my life has the love language of physical touch and it does not come naturally to me? It's hard for me. I did some marriage counseling many years ago with a couple where the husband in that couple was from a Swedish family. And uh, he would say, you know, he never saw his parents ever not once one time hug each other, never saw them hold hands, never saw them kiss. Uh, He guessed really that their love language, and and maybe this is true for all Swedish people, is, is food. And, um, well, guess what the primary love language of his wife is? It was touch. But he said, I'm not a toucher. My parents weren't touchers. Their parents were not touchers. We're just not touchy people. So what do you do if it's just not your natural wiring and you don't feel comfortable with, with touching? Well, this, this comes right, actually right out of the book. Uh, Dr. Chapman says, you know, take a look at your hands for a moment. Just, just take a look at them. And, uh, you know, why do you have them? And then he says, put them together. And now imagine, you know, inside here, imagine a child or imagine a friend or imagine your, your spouse there in the middle. And then he says, he says, just pull them toward you. Just pull them toward you. That's what you do if this is difficult for you. And the point is this, you practice. And you do that a thousand or ten thousand times. And eventually, maybe, you will start to feel less uncomfortable. That's, that's his advice. And here's the thing. Even if it doesn't work that way for you, remember agape love, which we've been talking a lot about? You see, this is not about you feeling less uncomfortable. It's about love. It's about loving people. And love is not about my comfort. You see, love is willing to experience discomfort in order to will and to work for the good of the other person. And the fact is, we oftentimes need to put our discomforts aside in order to be the loving people Christ wants us to be. And uh, this can be a tough area, um, but, it, but it's an area like all the other love languages. If it's a difficult one for you, what you've got to do is practice. You have to Practice. Okay, the last love language, or the, the last observation, sorry. Uh, often in Jesus' life and ministry, physical touch brought blessing. You know, we read in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 10, it says people were bringing little children to Jesus who have, uh, to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. (laughs) This is a, a really extraordinarily beautiful picture, to be honest. And it was quite unusual in the ancient world. Uh, In the ancient world, they really weren't sentimental about children the way we are in our culture. In fact, truth be told, children were regarded as the lowest of the low on the status totem pole. They didn't get uh, mentioned or noticed in public. They, you know, and if you have a traveling rabbi, the idea of the rabbi paying attention to the children, probably not going to happen. That's why Jesus would sometimes use children as a picture of life in the kingdom of God, of, the, of greatness in the kingdom. Jesus knew that children were made to be touched. They were made to be loved. Often in the ancient world, as with lepers or people that had imperfections of some kind, uh, this would not happen. People would not touch them. Yet there was something about Jesus. Think about this. Back up from the story. There was something about Jesus that said to the parents and said to people, hey, I need to get my kid over there and get him to touch him. What was it about Jesus that communicated that? That the parents got the idea that my child could be blessed by this guy's touch. And so parents were bringing little children to have Jesus touch them. And the disciples know Jesus is way too important for this. He's got way too much going on to take time for this. But actually, Jesus doesn't. Because to touch is to love. To touch is to bless. And Jesus knew that. He was always looking for those who were least likely to be blessed. 
And, you know, to refuse to touch is to dehumanize people. No, I don't want to touch you. You see? And so Jesus would touch other people. Folks uh, did not want to touch. Just to bless them, he would do that. Now, again, said this before, there are right ways to touch people, and there are right places to touch people, and then there are wrong ways and places to touch people. We all know about this. We all know about this. The fact is our bodies are made by God and are so important and so enmeshed and imbued with our spirit, so bound up with our spirit, that the wrong kind of touch can be incredibly destructive physically, emotionally, spiritually, you name it. Physical abuse between, a, uh, between spouses, uh, physical abuse between parents and, and a child, or for that matter in any relationship, is what? It's wrong. It's sin. It is not okay. And I would just say, if that's happening to you, you need to get to a safe place and get help immediately. You probably need to share that with someone who can help you get to a safe place immediately and get help. Sexual abuse is wrong. It's sin. It's not okay. Unwanted sexual advances are wrong. They're sin. They are not okay. The Bible talks about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that means that when I'm dealing with the body of another human being, I'm dealing with something holy. Does this make sense? You got that? You understand that when we're talking about touching, we're talking about right kinds of touching, right places, right time, right way. You got that? I'm not talking about weirdo yuck touching. Okay? <laughs> You know, I, find my, I found myself marveling this week, thinking about uh, coming to this table, the Lord's table. You know, I said some weeks ago that in the Lord's table, all five love languages are spoken. You know, in this sacrament, Jesus gives us something to touch. Reminders of his body that are broken for us. And reminders of his blood that has been shed for us. All reminders of his love. Reminders that the word became flesh, you see. Jesus is God with skin on. Now, why would he do that? Well, it turns out that human existence, your life and mine, is actually part of a much bigger story, a very beautiful love story. There's this, this hero, a prince, the best human being, the best human being that ever lived, and his name is Jesus. And he has always lived in serene perfection and joy and holiness and righteousness. But then there is this human race, you and me. And we're pretty ragged. We're pretty sinful. We're pretty poor. We're pretty hurting. And the prince astonishingly says he wants to marry us, the bride. That's all ragged and sinful and poor and hurting. And to do that, the prince actually becomes a peasant actually becomes like us, actually sacrifices his life. So one day, the prince and his bride, Jesus and the church, God and you, God and me, could be together. Didn't see that coming. Did not see that coming. And yet that is the significance of what we have displayed on this table. The idea that Jesus would come to this earth and lay down his life, that his body would be broken for us, and that his blood would be shed for us. So that we could be his bride. It's a remarkable story. Uh, it's a remarkable depiction of love, is what it is. And Jesus has given us this meal so that when we come to it by faith, somehow, some way, our spirits are actually fed. And grace is received, and we are encouraged, and 
And so we invite you to partake of this meal with us. The one prerequisite is that you have faith in Jesus. That Jesus be your prince. That you understand that he loved you and died for you and that he came back from the dead. And, and um, if you can come to this table in faith, then Jesus welcomes you to this table. Faith is all you need. There's no greater love anywhere at any time than the love that is displayed on this table. Pray with me as we're going to set aside these, this bread and this uh, wine and juice for their special purposes. And uh, as I pray, I'll ask those who are going to serve us this morning to come forward. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the love story that you tell at the love story that unfolded in you sending your son Jesus, at Jesus' willingness to become just like us, at Jesus' willingness to lay down his life for us, that his body would be broken and his blood shed. We thank you, God, that we can come and partake of this meal together. As we do it, we remember him until he returns. God, nourish us, feed us, increase our faith, Convince us, Father, of your love for us as we partake. Remind us of that love. And all of these things, Lord, we we give thanks. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. We will have uh, some stations up front, uh, three stations. And the gentleman holding the goblets, there's a little bracelet on the stem of one of the goblets. That's wine. Uh, the, the goblet without the bracelet on the stem is, is juice. And you'll come up and tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. And, and then you'll go back to your seat. So when you stand up, you're going to go to your left and come down the aisle and, uh, and, and come up and, and partake. And then you'll just make a big circle and go back to your seat. So, gentlemen. There you go, Bill. Thank you. Yeah, you guys can be right here. Yep, you guys are right here. There we go.